Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Charlie Ellis, investment luminary, founder of Greenwich Associates, author of 17 investment books, longtime member of Yale's investment committee, and a regular guest on the show. At the tender age of 85, Charlie's published two books this year, Figuring It Out, an annotated compilation of some of his best investment writing over 50 years, and Inside Vanguard, a history of the index juggernaut we sat down to discuss both of his latest works. Our conversation covers common characteristics of the best professional services firms and selections from Figuring It Out and Inside Vanguard. From Figuring It Out, we discuss the challenges of professional investment management, 
investment committees, and analogies to investing from tennis, baseball, golf, and running. From Inside Vanguard, we cover the rocky early days of Vogel's folly, the firm's on-again, off-again relationship with Wellington, its growth under Jack Brennan, compensation model, recent initiatives, and future prospects. Before we get going, the holidays are fast approaching, and just like learning from investment greats, we've got you covered. It just so happens that my wife works with one of the best custom jewelers in the country. They've sold jewelry to kings, queens, presidents, first ladies, and lots of regular folks like us too. For the ESG conscious, they only sell lab diamonds alongside a line of incredible looking travel jewelry. You can get a great gift for your loved ones knowing all along that you'll help me get serious brownie points for mentioning your business on the show. Hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge to check it out. Now, if you value experiences more than baubles, or if you're a single male, in part because you missed my spread the word advice on the Friends Reunion show in September, we've got an experience for you too. Hop on our website, capitalallocators.com, click the premium tab, and buy premium memberships for your colleagues and friends for less than the price of a cup of coffee each week probably a lot less after inflation. Your friends will love you for getting them the weekly experience of receiving an email from us each Saturday morning with announcements, my favorite reading of the week, and updates on our guests. They can also access our library of transcripts that's so large at this point, it takes more than a year to get through reading just one a day. And if that's not enough to warm your heart to spread holiday cheer, between now and the end of the year, we're offering a holiday discount of 20% off the first year of membership. I'm afraid I can't make the same offer for the sparkling jewelry my wife sells that will brighten up your holidays, but their prices are already so low, you won't believe it. Hop on our website and the coupon code will be waiting for you, or hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my latest conversation with Charlie Ellis. Charlie, wonderful to see you. Glad to be with, with you, Ted. I, friendship goes back a long, long way. So your work the last couple of years has focused on some of the best firms in different areas, certainly in investment management and the books you've written on Vanguard and Capital, Goldman Sachs, and then studying other top professional services firms. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you found as the commonalities of what make the best professional services firms what they are over time. Well, it's so clear and so consistent across the different professions. I started out looking to find what characteristics there were, and I was startled at how many characteristics these great firms all had in common. And if they don't have one, they don't make it to the finals as a really great firm. It's just, it's just stunning to me. Number one, you've got to have a culture that is a great place to work for the very best talents who've got careers on their minds as to they want to have a terrific career and they want to be working for clients that they're proud to be working for in ways that they're proud of working. So you've got to have a culture that captures that. And there are a lot of different kinds of culture that can capture that, but they're all so clearly tribal, compelling. You can't stay here unless you understand and live by these standards. And we believe they are the most important standards in the world. Now, 
superficial around that will be characteristics such as do you wear a jacket when you leave your office and go into the main part of the organization? Or do you keep go shirt sleeves? Do you eat at your desk or do you go to a nice place for lunch? What time do you start? Do you go to the funerals and the weddings of almost everybody who's in the partnership or that's not expected? There are a lot of different clues and signals. But for each culture, those clues and signals are very strong, very clear, and never violated. So culture is number one. Then you recruit the most capable people to fit in with that culture. Then recruiting is given very high priority by the most important people inside the organization. Senior partners do the recruiting, not HR or some secondary level. Recruiting the very best. And then what they all want, everybody who's really superstar talent knows what they've got is the capability of having a great career. So what they're looking for, if they've got their head screwed on tight, is what's in it for me? If I make the cut, that'd be great. If I don't make the cut three, four, five years from now, what is it? And for both reasons, the answer is training, education, development, proficiency, getting your skills to a high, high level so that you'll be the very best lawyer, investment manager, accountant, whatever that you could be. Well, once you get that going, then you say, well, is there any other really compelling proposition? You're darn right. The culture is all about service to clients. And that service to clients commitment shows up in day-to-day practice, shows up in new things that you do of no great consequence, but they're nice and clever and they work very well for that particular client, or new things that you do or someone else in the partnership has done, and you can make it available to several different clients because it's got lots of applicability. And then you get that very strong commitment to clients can lead to changing the whole structure of the organization. And then the last is, of course, leadership. Because leadership is what makes all those different component parts work, brings them all together so that they are really effective. And the nice thing about it is, yeah, these are all tough disciplines, but those disciplines are reinforcing and they bring the people inside the organization to the highest level of their ability to perform, which is exactly what they wanted to have happen. And it's exactly what clients want, is to have the very highest talent, skill, capability, and determination. So you attract the best clients. They get the most interesting people in the field working in the organization, most interesting clients working, or the organization working for them. And that attracts, all of a sudden you see the wheel rolls over and over and over and over, and it's self-reinforcing. Where have you seen examples where that wheel almost looks like it should turn, but there's a little chink somewhere and it never quite spins for whether it's an investment management organization or a consultant or a law firm. You'll see a lot of that. I think the worst part is the other way around. What if you're a really outstanding firm? For years, Arthur Anderson was the outstanding professional firm. And then a group of people individually and then collectively and then more and more people got involved with I care so much about how much I get paid, how much I take home, that I'm really not comfortable with some of the rules and regulations around here. I don't buy this whole cultural thing. And once you've made that tip, 
and more and more people's rotten apples do ruin the other apples in the barrel. If you don't snuff it out quickly, it will take over and you will find the whole organization has gone from professional first to business first, from serving clients first to taking care of ourselves first. And anybody who's smart enough to be in any one of these organizations is certainly smart enough to rationalize the process of degradation, but it should be a capital crime because they're so hard to build one of these organizations. And then when they get torn apart, you look back and say, how in the world could that have happened? How did that happen? And it's the same pattern over and over and over again. What do I get out rather than what can I put in? All right, let's turn to figuring it out. It's a series of pieces that you've written dating way back. And I'd love to touch on a few of them because in some sense they tie together. In some sense, there's some really great distinct lessons. I don't want to dive too deeply into indexing because we've done that on prior shows. The one I want to start with is Murder on the Orient Express, where you described what you felt were some of the challenges in getting to great investment results. That's obviously a takeoff on Agatha Christie's wonderful book. And the storyline has every reader wondering, who do you suppose could have done it? And then it turns out that everybody that she's had in the book was part of this scheme. And so the, the theory that I was putting forward, and I stand with it right now, is that all the different participants have made contributions to the problem of investment results, particularly of pension funds and endowment funds, typically underperforming the markets that they were striving to do well in. Part of it's the investment committees of the pension funds and endowment funds and the mistakes they made. Part of that is the investment consultants who advise and recommend investment managers. And you go down through the list in every single category who's they would all say, and our job is to do a really great job for the client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice to say. What's the reality? And the reality is, I'm sad to say, there's more harm than good been done in one, one dimension after another. So the basic summary is that everybody's guilty. Are there aspects in each of those layers of the ecosystem investment management that you think aren't really still well understood? Yeah, it's very easy and a very sophisticated line of work for professionals to appear to be terrifically professional and, in fact, to be very clearly commercial or business-minded or what's in it for me. It's very hard for people who are not inside a profession to be able to see when are they being BSed and led astray by someone who is in the profession. And it's a shame, but it's a reality. So the first layer you mentioned of that was investment committees. One of your chapters talks about best practices of investment committees, and we'd love you to share your thoughts on what constitutes those best practices. Well, that's really interesting and really easy. That's interesting because it's completely different today than it was 25 years ago. It used to be that the purpose of the investment committee was to pick and choose the investment managers who would be assigned parts of the portfolio. Well, today, that's not a very useful exercise, partly because active managers have such a tough time being successful. And indexing is a fairly simple solution to the operational problem, although it still leaves you with the obvious problem of, okay, now that you've decided to index the assets, 
what's your asset mix going to be, and what is your portfolio structure for the long run? The purpose of an investment committee is to help the managers be successful. It's just very different from the way a lot of people in investment committees think their job is. They think their job is hire them and fire them, hire them and fire them, and be tough, and don't take them home for dinner, and don't get too friendly. That's an old-fashioned, sort of worked in the 50s and 60s, maybe in the 70s, but it doesn't work today at all. The purpose today of an investment committee is to facilitate the manager being very successful. And if you are on an investment committee and the committee doesn't seem to understand that, that's the best opportunity you've got to improve long-term results because the record is very clear that investment committees tend to fire managers at the wrong time and to hire managers at the wrong time, creating a drag on investment results they could otherwise have had. But if you work with a manager to have a long-term working relationship that's mutually beneficial and successful, then you're doing something that's really worthwhile. And in like manner, the purpose of the chair of an investment committee is not to lead in making decisions to hire and fire and so on. The purpose of the chair is to be sure the committee is doing a good job of being the best team at work at serving the managers and helping the managers be successful. How do committees go about helping managers be successful other than giving them money and keeping it there? Well, most committees don't do very much that's very helpful. So let's acknowledge that. But then if you look at those that are effective, and it's not, there are some very famous named endowments, for example, that don't have success in their investment committees. And there are some very large pension funds that don't have success in their investment committees. But if you do have success in the investment committee, the first and best thing that committees could do is figure out what is unique about their particular fund and why is it different from all the other funds that would like to have very good investment results. That's not all that easy, but it's not all that hard either. And if you think about it, Yale, for example, has an integrated budget. All the different parts of Yale are Yale. Harvard, on the other hand, has every tub on its own bottom. So the Faculty of Arts and Sciences gets more than half of its income every year through the endowment. But the Divinity School does not. And the School of Education gets almost nothing from the endowment. So as you're managing the funds, you really need to know what is it about this particular client that makes them different and they're are differences if you've thought about it carefully enough. Some of them are institutional structure. Some of them are scale. Some of them are proportion of the budget that's being covered by the endowment. And some have to do with personalities and histories and past experiences, which can make a big difference too. So once you understand who you are in a unique sense, and this is also true for every individual, we're all different. But if you find out who you are, you've then got a really good chance of helping all the managers focus on solving the real problem that you're trying to deal with. And that's probably the best thing that investment committees can do. There's a real fun thread that, of course, I was going to draw as you went through this, which is sports analogies. And I'd love to walk through four of them, starting with the one you're probably most well known for from the original Losers game, tennis. And would love you to describe the wonderful analogy you draw from tennis to investing. Well, the simplest description is that the Williams sisters played 
a winner's game of tennis. They could hit the ball really hard with great precision and could develop a strategy in any point play where they really put the pressure on the competition. I'm, for example, nowhere near that. I hit the ball out of bounds. I hit it in the net. I lay it up in such a way that one of the Williams sisters would simply destroy me on the <laughs> other side. I don't play a winner's game of tennis. I play a loser's game of tennis where the outcome is in the control unintentionally of the loser. If you lose more points than I do, I win. So all I have to do in that kind of a game is keep the ball in play and give you every opportunity to make a mistake, hit the ball in the wrong place or hit it in the net or hit it out of bounds, and you will lose enough points so that I'll wind up being the winner. And the corollary in investing? If you don't recognize that investment management is a highly competitive field in which the skills of the competition are very advanced, in which the knowledge base and information available to the competition is really terrific, you will make mistakes of not realizing that the competition is going to take advantage of those mistakes, and not directly to you, but you will see that they will do better, and you will come out underperforming. Worse than that, and this is the part that really breaks my heart, 85 to 90% of actively managed mutual funds underperform the benchmark they have sought to beat. Not every year, but every decade, every 20 years. And if you want to be in the top half of the top quartile, all you have to do is index. And you'd be there because other people would have beaten themselves up trying to do better and actually making more mistakes. Let's turn to golf and Tommy Armour. He's got to come up with the best piece of advice anybody ever had for golfers. And that's hit the shot. You've got the best chance of having success. Hit the shot that makes the next shot easy. You put those two together and you will not try a really tricky shot, which is where many people go run up and score pretty fast in golf, hitting it into the drink or into the sand trap or into the serious rough. And then hit the shot that makes the next shot easy is such a sensible thing to do. It's not exciting. It's not dramatic. People don't burst into applause, but it gives you a very nice chance of having a low score. Sounds very similar to your thoughts on baseball and Ted Williams. Well, Ted Williams was all about discipline. The guy was just incredible. And as good as he was, if he hadn't been flying fighter planes in Korea during the early 50s, he would have had an even better record because he was batting over 400 when he went off to Korea. And he was all about the discipline of hitting the ball. And his theory was very simple. There are not one strike zone. There are dozens of zones within the strike zone. And the one that he liked was high and outside. He could hit that for a home run half the time. And if it didn't make a home run, it's very likely to be a double off the wall. And that's pretty good for your batting average. He had other places where he was batting 300 and other places in the same batter's box where he was batting in the high 200s because it was harder for him to do those particular slots. He saw it as a mind game, the batter versus the pitcher. 
The pitcher's throwing with his hand. The batter's got a club in his hand. It hits the hell out of the ball. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But it really is a mind game between trying to outsmart the pitcher and outsmart the batter. And the pitchers all know this. They're trying to find out where has the batter got a weakness and where can I send the ball to be to that batter's weakness. But if the batter knows that, then the batter can counter that by preparing himself for balls to go into and being able to take strikes and let them go by, waiting till you get something that was a really good opportunity. He was all about that kind of discipline. One of the things that I loved about Williams is he cared about his bats and how much moisture they might absorb. And he had all kinds of very precise things that he cared about in his being ready to go up to bat. And you think, never would have thought about that. That's right. Never would have thought about that. But he did. When you put the tennis analogy and the baseball analogy together, the tennis analogy gets you to indexing in the public markets. The baseball analogy, a little more like a Warren Buffett, wait for your fat pitch, which in some sense is the antithesis of indexing. Curious how you think about those two together. I'm actually so comfortable with the idea that indexing actually works for everybody. And there are exceptions. For example, I know one investment manager that's a terrifically bright, very mentally disciplined guy who's got half a dozen analysts who are absolutely expert in their own particular industry. And they don't pay any attention to the 500 largest companies in those industries. They're going for the small companies that other people have never heard about. There's no research on them, so it's an imperfect market. And they understand the industry so well that they can see if this guy's strategy is given a good play for the next three, four, five years, it's really going to pay off. And they've had not smooth results. It's been choppy, but you would expect that when you're dealing with long wavelength in undercovered, undervaluated stocks. But they've had, over time, an outstanding record. And I can understand that. And I can understand, for example, people doing an arbitrage in the convertible bond business because almost nobody's doing it themselves, so the competition is not there. The problem with investment management in normal securities is not that we don't have great investment managers. We've got terrific investment managers. In fact, we've only got terrific investment managers because all the others have been sent to the locker room. Now that we've got only really outstanding investment managers, they don't make very many mistakes that you could capitalize on. It's like playing tennis, not against the Williams sisters, but against the bank board. It never makes a mistake. It just keeps popping them right back to you. And the quality of the market is to get the prices right. And the better the market, the more likely you're going to get the prices right. And when you have hundreds, thousands of talented people trying to figure out anybody's making an error and how to eliminate errors, and they've got fabulous information access, then, you know, Mike Bloomberg's terminals are all over the place. Everywhere you go in the world, people have got terminals, and they can find out anything they want to, anytime they want to, on anything they want to know about. Now, the market naturally has become more and more and more and more, quote-unquote, efficient. But that's what markets are supposed to do. And we ought to say, yes, we've succeeded greatly. We've got the markets really efficient. But instead, we're trying to, to find a way to beat the market which you can only do if the markets are imperfect. And the last one is running and the story that you took out of watching the Munich Marathon. 
I really enjoyed that experience. My son and his wife were living in Munich, and I was in Europe, and so I went to spend the weekend with them. And they had a friend who was going to run the Munich Marathon. So we all went out to this Olympic Stadium at Munich to watch the runners come through at the end. But we did it by going to a couple of different stops along the way and seeing their friend. So when we're sitting down waiting for the friend to come into the stadium, it's been going for three, or three and a half hours. And as each individual person came through the portal, under the stadium and out into the round for the final lap around this interior of the stadium, they had created a mist or a fog so that it was kind of dramatic. And they'd come out into the sunlight and invariably they'd put their arms up in this wonderful way of expressing that they've succeeded. And some had succeeded at running it in two and a half hours, some had succeeded in running in three hours, some succeeded first time they'd made it, some succeeded, it's the last time they're going to do it, some succeeded because their friends had all made it and the whole group of them had made it and they were so pleased with each other. And none of them cared about the fact that the Kenyans had come through half an hour before and had <laughs> won the race, That was the game was over. But it occurred to me, watching that, each one of those runners had a goal. And they all achieved their goal. And their goals were different. But they all had that same extraordinary experience of achieving their goal. And in the investments world, if each of us would think about what is our real goal and then focus on that, I think we would have a much better chance of being very successful investors. Give you an example of a story that I really enjoyed personally. When my father's parents died at about the same time, they left $40,000 to my mother and father. And mom and dad sitting at dinner said, you know, that's not enough to change our lives, but it is enough to do something we really want to see done. We want our children to go to good colleges. My sister went to Smith. One of my brothers went to Stanford. The other brother and I went to Yale. And so we did fulfill my parents' dream. Now, the investment side of this is really kind of surprising. What did my mother do with the money? Did she put it into the stock market because there was a wonderful stock market after the war? No, no. Stocks go down, too. She'd just seen the 1930s. She knew what that was all about. And well, did she put in a savings bank? At least she could get the interest. 4% interest would accumulate over time. No, she wouldn't do that because it said right in the passbook, the bank reserves the right to delay payment, paying out for 28 days because savings banks ran on a very thin liquidity balance, and they didn't want to have a lot of people cashing out all at the same time. So <laughs> fine. She put it in a checking account. And most people would look at that and say, that's the dumbest investment decision anybody could possibly make. Why do you think that's a good decision, Charlie? I think it's a good decision because she knew what her objective was, and she had enough to meet the objective. So why put it at risk? The last couple of times you came on the show talking a lot about indexing, and we touched on Vanguard, but now we have your latest book, Inside Vanguard, that just tells this wonderful story in much more detail than I think most people understand. So why don't we go back to Jack Bogle and the beginning in the early years of where this story starts? Well, the early, early years, Jack was at the old-fashioned mutual fund, balanced fund manager 
Wellington management. And he was terrific at doing what was traditional in the trade at those days, selling, 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 selling. Most of the things that he would now be known for, he was going in exactly the opposite direction with vigor and drive and wonderful skill. The only thing that's a real common denominator is Jack had this wonderful vision of who he was and how he wanted to be seen. And he nurtured that vision and he had it down pat. So every journalist who came to spend some time with Jack would get the same story exactly the same way, including when to tear up and (laughs) when to shake his head at the miseries that his mother and father had gone through and the challenges that he'd lived with. So part of it is to get recognition for Jack as an entrepreneur was constantly pressing the edges when he was at Wellington. Then when he got to combine with Wellington and Thorndike, Doran, Payne, and Lewis to create the merger made in heaven, as he would have described it at the time. And within a couple of years, it just didn't work out because it was a culture clash of the worst kinds. Jack wanted to make all the decisions, and he wanted other people to be obedient. And that was it, as far as he was concerned. And you've got Jack wanting to do things his way and a collegial group wanting to talk things out and work things out. And they kept finding themselves in one after another disagreement. So finally, they made Jack resign. And he was stuck with what's got to be, when you think of a starting place, this is not starting at the starting line. This is starting way behind the starting line. Jack never liked the back office parts of the mutual fund business. Had no interest in it. That was what he got. You're in a group of mutual funds, and you're doing the back office record keeping, and all you're going to do is administer 11 mutual funds. So if you think today about what Wellington became, multi-trillion dollar asset manager, what Vanguard became, it's hard to think back to that time when this split happened and Jack goes and starts this thing called Vanguard, this administration business, and Wellington's bleeding assets. What happened in those couple of years after that initial split? Jack was trying to find ways to get out of the agreements when he left Wellington, one of which was no sales, and one of which was no investing. No sales and no investing. Well, what are we going to do about that? He came up with this cockamamie idea that maybe those index funds that were being sold to institutional investors could be repackaged for retail. Well, he thought he'd raise $150 million and go into the retail index fund business. In fact, it didn't raise 150, it didn't raise 100, didn't raise 50, and you could just see the expectations coming down as the road show went farther and farther around the country. And then all of a sudden they've got $12 million, which is more expensive to run than the fees. And a decade later, partly by merging with another mutual fund in that orbit, the world says, hey, you know, index funds look like a good idea. And people started coming towards Vanguard wanting to have index funds. No competition, off it goes. But 10 years waiting for a commitment to turn into something that was not a money loser, but actually started to become a reasonable good business. And then, of course, with 
the development of the index funds and then ETFs, that whole field took off. But Jack had the same problem with ETFs he had with index funds. At this time, he had the guy who invented ETFs, Nathan Most, came to Jack and said, this is just right for you. And Jack looked at it and said, no, it's not. It's speculative. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And so for years, Vanguard wouldn't touch ETFs. Well, now, of course, with Gus Souter having done a terrific job of building that business, they're a major factor in ETFs and a major factor in index funds and a major factor in actively managed funds because they still do active management. What was Wellington's path during that decade when Vanguard went from very little to launching those index ETFs? Well, it's a completely separate but overlapping story, and it's a wonderful story. The culture of a partnership, and they were a publicly owned company in a terrible bear market, losing assets under management, so their profits were going down. And one day, Nick Thorndike and Bob Doran agreed, maybe the worst is behind us. Maybe what we should do is go private. They checked it out and figured out that going private would work out very, very well. If we had a partnership, we could go private and build a great organization. So they did that. And it was a time when it looked like it was a pretty dicey proposition because the markets had been going. We had the longest bear market this country had ever had. And so there were all kinds of challenges along hey, what's going to happen in the future and asking people to put up the money to buy into the partnership. But the market did turn and they got some substantial advantages that popped up. For an example, MIT endowment went looking for investment managers and they picked out the two finalists would be Fidelity and the now Wellington. And Bob Doran led a team of people with a simple mandate. We have got to win this business. And they worked at it and worked at it. And it over a period of a year or so, showed to the people at MIT that there was a culture of value inside the Wellington organization that would be really worthwhile in the long run because it would attract superb investment analysts and superb investment managers and keep them there for the long term. So that really made a big difference. And then the Hartford Insurance Company called and said, we've got a lot of business building capability, but we know that we don't have good investment management capability, and we'd like to have mutual funds that we could distribute. Could you do the management? We'll do the distribution. Sure. And off they go. And the state of Ohio made a contract with them to supervise the pension funds of the state of Ohio. And this business with non-captive investment management mandates became a major part of Wellington as an organization. Once they got used to the idea of subcontracting with outside clients coming to them, they started thinking about what else can we do that might really work out? But what are you going to make as your offer? Well, we want to have very good research, very good portfolio management, and very good relationships. And the sum and substance of all of that is that they have grown steadily in a very powerful way. And they're major firm today. It's kind of fun. Wellington is the largest manager for Vanguard, and Vanguard is the largest client for Wellington, and they get along beautifully. But if you'd seen them at the time of the breakup, you wouldn't believe it was even possible. How did 
Vanguard come back to Wellington to have what's today a very symbiotic relationship? Uh, not in a very cheerful or friendly way. Meeting after meeting, Jack would go to his board of directors and say, we ought to cut this fee, we ought to cut that fee, we ought to cut this fee, we ought to cut that fee. <laughs> and he was very tough. He had, a, and understandably, a sense of vengeance is mine. He was quite comfortable beating the Dickens out of Wellington and did. But when he was replaced by Jack Brennan, and Jack Brennan could go up and say, let's talk seriously. And Bob Doran wasn't good enough to say, fine, let's talk seriously and see if we can work something out here. So when Jack Brennan came in, he really took the business from the idea and professionalized it. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts around his leadership style. Number one, he didn't give a damn about being famous. Just didn't have anything to do with what he wanted to do. Number two, he cared a lot about finding ways to serve clients, which Jack Bogle had always been focused on. But Jack Brennan really wanted to serve clients and understood that automation was the secret. Whereas Jack Bogle opposed automation because it cost too damn much. Well, yeah, the capital cost of a computer is a lot, but over time it saves enough money to pay for itself. Jack Bogle just honestly didn't catch that. But Brennan understood it. And he had a very, very strong belief in service to clients. And then the way to do that best is through technology to be able to reduce the cost structure. And then another dimension that he brought to bear in his first job out of Harvard Business School, he worked for an organization that we all know as Johnson's Wax <laughs> and manufactured a series of other really good household products. And S.C. Johnson was privately owned, but the ownership cluster, members of the Johnson family, had a very strong belief that the people who worked with them deserved part of the action. And so every year they made a point of distributing some of the profitability of the company to the individuals who had done great things. So one of the things that Jack Brennan did was to bring that concept to Vanguard in the so-called partnership, which is supplemental pay, but it can become quite significant because you have units of ownership that grow over time. And that has taken their compensation from a little bit below market average to at least up to and maybe a little bit above market average. So the ownership and compensation structure of Vanguard is always one of the most powerful aspects of this flywheel in that the business is owned by the funds. How does that work alongside this partnership compensation model? Well, the board of directors decides every year what would be the appropriate allocation given the achievements of the past year to the partnership, and then it runs for 20 years. So year after year after year after year, if you stick around, it accumulates. And so they have a very large fraction of the people who work there have worked there for a long, long time. And that's good for any culture. If you if you got a clear sense of purpose and mission and then reasonably good compensation financially and a sense of belonging to something that really matters, then it's doing work you're terribly proud of. And Brennan would always say, if you really want to get rich, this is in the right place for you. But if you would like to serve the interests of real people, we've got 30 million people 
that need help. Some of them don't recognize they need help, but they sure all recognize they want good service. And that's our drive, and that's our focus. And if you're interested in that as a satisfying way of life, then we've really got something for you. What are some of the ways under Jack Brennan that Vanguard was able to run its organization so effectively such that it really became the dominant market player in this index fund business? Well, part of it is recruiting the right people. And part of it is thinking about the people that you've got working with you and the people that you would like to have working with you and creating the environment that they would feel good about. And part of it is providing the service that people would want. So an illustration, which I've always thought is kind of a nice one, is if you have a bad market, the volume of demand for service goes up like a skyrocket if it's a f- sudden bear market. And you've got to have the people. But if you're running Vanguard for low cost, you don't want to have surplus people. You do not want to have surplus people around waiting for trouble times. You can't do that. So what's the solution? The answer was, and this is just a wonderful quality of imagination, everybody in management, including Bogle and Brennan and most of the others, got trained, and it took a couple of days of time for each person to get trained on how to answer the phones and how to do the job. So if there was a problem all of a sudden in the markets and the volume of demand for services going up, they'd fly the Swiss Army flag because the Swiss Army, i.e. people who've got a regular job and then on call at any time to be in the Army, that was what they called it. And they would call for and have Hundreds of people come into service to help with the uh, demands at the peak crush. And things like that are quality of thoughtfulness and a wonderful quality of management that we can all borrow. How did they view competition from the other index providers over time, the Black Rocks of the world, Fidelities, everybody else who was providing the similar kind of service? Well, those are very, very interesting individual organizations. BlackRock, of course, has built its business primarily through acquisition, and Vanguard has done no acquisitions, just organic growth. Fidelity is a different kind of an organization, partly because it's a privately owned organization, and Abby Johnson has got to go down in a stunning surprise that she could be that effective a chief executive officer as she has been. Abby has done things to change fidelity greatly and make it an extraordinary competitor. I'd love to hear the story about the sale of the iShares business. It's a very, very interesting business situation. iShares started out with Jim Verton, who was uh, in charge of the trust investment and the investment management division of the Wells Fargo Bank and didn't get along with George Hopiak, who was the head of the trust division of the Wells Fargo Bank. So he developed and got permission from his chief executive to build a business as an investment manager without any trust activity, and gradually got indexing going. That then got combined with a couple of other organizations. So it was an organization that Barclays Global owned, Barclays had a problem with not having adequate capital. As a regulated bank, it had to raise capital. And one way of doing that 
would be to sell Barclays Global Investors. And the end, the competition, was really between BlackRock and Vanguard. They were able to offer $5 billion to buy the ETF business. Now, BlackRock came in with a slam. We'll buy the whole business and we'll do it in a mixed, with some equity and complicated transaction, brilliantly executed. And you got to give Larry Fink an awful lot of credit for what he has done in building BlackRock as an organization. And this would be one good illustration of it. But for me, studying Vanguard specifically, what is really impressive is all of a sudden you've got this, I never thought of Vanguard as being a profit-making activity. It's not. It's a break-even activity. Yeah, but where the hell did they raise $5 billion? <laughs> well, first they went to Omaha, Nebraska, and talked to Warren Buffett. Would he be interested in lending some money? And then they explained to him through their banker that they had the ability to raise money by passing it back to the funds anytime they wanted to. And they still got that ability. But tie it back tight with the debt that they could get from Berkshire Hathaway and the equity that they could raise themselves, they had the ability to put $5 billion on the table overnight. And that puts you in a position to think very, very differently. One of the directors was serving as chairman of the board at the time, said, well, you didn't win because BlackRock came in with a bigger bid and for the whole operation. But now that you know that you could have raised $5 billion, it forces you to think carefully about what could you find where you could use $5 billion to do something with capital power. And when you think about Vanguard, at least I do, I never thought of them as ever having capital power. Another way of thinking about it is they've got the ability to increase fees or not reduce fees, and let's say by one basis point. Okay. One basis point on the basis of, well, $9 trillion of assets. And that turns out to be an enormous amount of money year after year that you can invest in any way that you think would be a creative investment to create value for investors that would make Vanguard a stronger and stronger competitor. With that buying power at one basis point, which I'm guessing is something like $900 million a year, I mean, certainly haven't heard of mega acquisitions that they've done over the years. So how have they chosen to spend some or all of that money every year? Well, it's only recently that that's been clearly available. And it fits with something that they are capable of doing and that I personally hope they will do and develop even greater capabilities. Tim Buckley, who's the chief executive, took about a year to figure out what he would like to do and with whom in his organization he would like to do it, and what was the strategy, the initiatives, before he would go off and do something exciting. And I, in retrospect, I think it was a very sensible thing to do because the ship is running very smoothly. If you're going to change things, you want to be sure they're really right, particularly if you're the new guy in charge. And I think it also fits with his personal style. He's by no means a show-off kind of a guy who doesn't do splashy stuff. He's very, very conscientious about serving the investors within the Vanguard family. Take time, but the direction that I'm hoping they will go in is to develop using artificial intelligence, which is increasingly effective and capable, to create a 
custom-tailored capability of giving advice on investing to individuals who previously couldn't afford it. You can always get registered investment advisor, but at 1% of assets, it turns out to be a pretty significant cost. And although that's a business that has boomed, I think in the long run, it's going to turn out to be too costly relative to the value added if there is a strong competition. And the strong competition could come out of artificial intelligence allowing organizations like Vanguard that are determined to do first-rate service, create values in the service dimension that is called an investment advice, but it's something almost everybody needs good investment advice. And the payoff would be, over a long period of time, payoff would be terrific for each individual. What has Vanguard done outside of AI on this growing area of financial advice? Well, if you look back, you'd say the target date funds were part of that. It's a pretty simple and straightforward proposition, and it by no means adapts to individuals who have great wealth on the side or nothing or are less worried about market fluctuations than others. They have a terrific capability of servicing registered investment advisors, and that's a major channel of distribution. And they have a concept of how to understand the value of a registered investment advisor. And it basically boils down to you've reduced the number of times you make mistakes, which all of us do because we're human beings. If you have a registered investment advisor urging you to think in terms of long-term and you will develop a plan, which most of us don't do, which we all know we should do, you will avoid making some mistakes that are very, very expensive. And so not making mistakes is the key to the registered investment advisor. This has become such a freight train in the industry. I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on what, if anything, could derail Vanguard's continued success. Well, the Vanguard people would all say right away, it's easy. All we have to do is get fat, dumb, and lazy. All we have to do is get overconfident. All we have to do is stop focusing on finding ways to reduce cost and passing that benefit on to our clients. And because they're so focused on it, they probably won't make that mistake. And the second mistake that people would normally say is, well, they're going to bet too big. They're going to be so big. Anybody who in the investment management business, particularly active investment management, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden they're too big and it shows up in underperforming. Well, yeah, but look at all the different managers that they've got. When they think they've gotten to a scale with a manager that that manager is now going to run the risk of being too big, they will take money away and go look for other managers. They also have done a very nice job of finding ways to model different kinds of investment managing and operate them by computer inside the organization. And that has been effective. And of course, indexing, that just doesn't happen to be a problem at all. Well, Charlie, I have a few fun closing questions that I managed somehow to not have asked you previously. So I'm going to walk through those. First is, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? That's a really tough one for me because I love the work that I do. And I describe it to friends. I say, you know, I quit working at 32 and I haven't worked since then. But most people say, yeah, 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 but you're still working all the time now. Well, that's the way it goes. 
I guess you'd have to say writing is my favorite hobby because the opportunity to try to figure something out, and that's where the title of the book, Figuring It Out, comes from. I've been trying for years and years and years to figure out what is it that we could be doing that we're not doing? What is it we are doing that we shouldn't be doing? What works and what doesn't work in the investment management world? And, it, you know, it's just fascinating. And so I love doing that. I love the work that I'm doing so much that I'd have to call that's my hobby. This might be a tough one, but which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? It is a tough one. The first answer is real easy. That's David Swenson. Uh, I had the privilege of serving on David's investment committee for 17 years. And we were also, on a personal basis, good friends. But he is, without a doubt, the finest investment manager, I believe, any of us have ever seen. And it wasn't because he was such a terrific investment producer. And he certainly got a wonderful rate of return. But it was because he did that with the discipline of minimizing risk all the time. And he created, he was more creative by a long shot than most of us are willing to recognize or able to recognize. I often think the best thing to say to get people in the right mindset with David Swenson is when he was not yet 30 and he was working at Solomon Brothers where he had been sent by Jim Tobin, the Nobel Prize winner, who was his principal teacher at Yale, because, David, you know all the theory and you know all the concepts and you're really good, but you do not know how the world the market really works. And the market is not made up of nice people. It's made up of selfish, greedy, hungry, ambitious people doing what is in their own personal best interest. And until you understand that, so you got to go work at Solomon Brothers and Lehman Brothers. And he did a couple of years at both. While he was at Solomon Brothers, he came up with a cockamamie idea that nobody ever heard of, an interest rate swap, $100 million principal, between the World Bank and IBM. And they laughed at him and said, you, you can't do that. He said, I think it's a natural. I think it'll work. And if you look at what he did as an investment manager, he was so creative, one after another, after another, after another. Said, you know, New Haven's a nice town. and Lots of good restaurants. And got this nice university. But, you know, from an investment point of view, it's really the sticks. There's nothing going on in New Haven in the investment world. And you want to have an investment organization at Yale? Don't you have to build an organization? Yes. Well, figure it out. So first thing he did, I said, well, they've got 1,200 new brilliant people every single year. So the students are terrific. If I could get the best students to, so I could figure out who they are and they could figure out who I am, I'd really be pretty well along. How do you do that? Well, create the most interesting course that the students could find. And while you have limit on 25 on how many students can take the course, you might have two or 300 apply for the course and then figure out from their applications which are the most promising, interview those, and then select very carefully. And so the 25 students in the class were very carefully selected. Then watch them in class. How did they do with new and important concepts? Bingo, bingo. That's great. Okay. Of the two or three that did the best, which one would you like to offer, or maybe two, would you offer a summer intern slot? What's that? Work in the investments office for the summer, 
It's fabulous to live in New Haven in the summertime. All the restaurants are great, but none of the students are there. So you don't have to get reservations. It's, it's terrific. And there's lots of recreational things that are fun to do. So it's not hard for people who know Yale and know New Haven to get them to stick around for the summer. And they get a chance to work as interns. And the best of those will be chosen to serve for three or four years after they graduate. And they'll be thrilled by that because it'll get them launched beautifully in their career. So all of a sudden you convert from, there's nothing going on at Yale to, no, 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 there's a terrific cauldron of talent all focused on wanting to get on your team as an investment manager. And the same kind of thing was done for every part of the discipline. And who's the second? Second is a really tough question for me because there are a lot of people that are close John Neff would be one of those who was very close. Jim Rothenberg, whom you know well, certainly one of those. I have tied for second, those two, because okay. they are both really wonderful. And then if you said, well, how about someone who's not so much an investment manager, but someone you really admire for their capabilities at organizing? And then I would go to Bob Doran, who for many years was the leader of the partnership at Wellington. What type of organizations in your work do you gravitate to like a moth to a flame? Because I got so deeply involved in understanding professional organizations in writing what it takes, I'd have to say really outstanding investment organizations and also to the extent that I would be welcome at other professional organizations. But mostly it would be investment organizations that are really good. All right, Charlie, I have one more for you. If everyone's genius lies adjacent to their eccentricity, what would you say are your genius and your related eccentricity? I'd say I don't understand the question. <laughs> you have to laugh. If anybody at my age still working all the time, but part of it is my wife is a very hardworking person and she is terrific at what she does. But I'm still fascinated by and still trying to help people understand how to do investing is, for me, a calling, the likes of which you'd think, don't you ever get tired of it? Well, you would get tired of it as you always were calling to the same person, trying to help them. But when you think of the range of people here at the Yale University, for example, I've made a practice of making myself available for anybody who would like to go through an investment counseling session. Rules of the game are simple. You tell me the truth, and unfortunately, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> and it's not an easy situation, so you better prepare to spend three or four hours together on a weekend because I don't do anything like this on, during the week. And this has turned out to be a very profoundly satisfying experience. Everybody is different, and everybody does have anxieties and worries, but a, a majority of the people there is a sensible thing for them that will do really good for them over the long run. And it's profoundly meaningful to me to be able to help people. This is what I'm all about as a human being. And if I could, I should have been a Boy Scout for life because <laughs> it was such a pleasing situation for me. And I've always wanted to try to help people with something that they might find difficult, but that is not actually all that difficult if you could just look at it for what it really is. And for investing, looking at it for what it really is, yes, the markets go up and down all the time, but they, by and large, stocks, 
perform in a very attractive way over every 10 years, every 20 years. And most people have got that kind of time horizon. Once they've realized that and start thinking in terms of that natural time horizon, they're off to, on their way to having a very nice success. Well, Charlie, once again, thanks so much for sharing your continued insights and wisdom. Ted, I have to tell you, I love being on your conversations with you. Some of your questions are really hard, but I really enjoy trying to answer them. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.